from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. This is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. This week we do a classic album dissection on Joni Mitchell's masterpiece, Blue. We'll discuss Joni Mitchell's career, the context of Blue, and its lasting impact and importance. And we'll analyze a few of our favorite tracks. We'll also hear from Joni Mitchell biographer David Yaffe and music critic Lindsay Zolads. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. Listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Greg Cott, he's Jim DeRogatis, and that's a little bit of the song All I Want by Joni Mitchell, the lead-off track from her 1971 album, Blue. Even 47 years later, people are still talking about this record and influenced and moved by it, regarded as one of the greatest of all time, certainly one of Joni's greatest works. Unflinching honesty, poetic lyrics, those were elements in this record that inspired a range of artists, Tori Amos, Liz Fair. Even Prince was singing Joni Mitchell's praises for years. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into Blue and discuss why it's a classic album and dissect some of the tracks, and we're later going to share our opinions on it. Absolutely, Greg. Who is Joni Mitchell? Born 1943, Roberta Joan Anderson in rural Alberta, Canada. Was a creative kid, apparently, right from the start. Would later go on to art school, but it was not an easy upbringing. She contracted polio early on. It was that time, bedridden, when she learned how to play guitar and began to sing. She got pregnant when she was a poor folk singer, struggling to uh, make her name in Toronto in the mid-60s, had a daughter that she gave up for adoption. It was only years later, in the mid-90s, when a tabloid outed that she'd had this child. Uh, They since reconciled. But what a thing to be exposed to the public. A series of toxic sometimes, chaotic, certainly uh, romantic relationships that I think got undue attention often. And all through it, Joni is writing countless iconic songs in the folk pop tradition. From both sides now. I've looked at clouds from both sides now. Come up and down. And still somehow. To Big Yellow Taxi. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. It's paradise. Put up a parking lot. Today we're going to zero in on what many people believe to be Mitchell's greatest album, Blue. We're going to start our conversation by speaking with David Yaffe, author of the biography Reckless Daughter, a portrait of Joni Mitchell. That book was released in 2017 and details Joni's life, career, and music. David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. For uh, the young'uns out there, David, who don't know, can you give us the capsule biography, this young woman from Canada, and how she set the world on fire or started to in the music world? It's interesting because usually when someone is a writer, when someone is a musician, they have idols that they want to emulate. And that didn't happen with Joni, not really. She had people that she knew how to imitate, but she didn't idolize them. So she's an unusual case that she's a great artist who didn't have somebody that she tried to emulate first. Do you think this is part of growing up sort of remotely? Well, that's part of it. She did grow up in this place that Margaret Atwood described as a blank space on global culture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, it was very isolated. It was very remote. Her family didn't have money. She didn't travel, really. So she just had that open sky in her creativity. She didn't have exposure to much. But she said she didn't grow up playing air guitar in the mirror or anything like that. She thought of herself as a visual artist, but really on a practical level, she thought that she probably ended up working in the fashion industry and that this folk revival was a fad and it would go on for a few years and it would die out and then she would do something else. He has heard her off to starboard In the breaking and the breathing of the water weeds While she was busy being free Something that set her off from the other children was when she got polio at age 10 and she was taken to this polio colony and her father never visited. Her mother visited once with a mask on. Six months go by, she gets her legs back. And suddenly she's no longer the first one picked for teams. You know, and she had thought of herself as an athlete. She kind of defined herself through that, you know, and suddenly her sense of identity was gone. And so she started to turn inward and she started to define herself as an artist, as a visual artist. The kid who could draw the best doghouse, that kind of thing. Mm. And all she really needed was just to go off in nature somewhere, go off in the woods, and be creative. And that was how she got through. And then she goes to art school. She doesn't have a scholarship. And so nobody's really treating her like she's special. So this arty kid, it seems like almost a little daydreamy uh, mm-hmm. as, a, as, a, as a teenager, figures out how to play guitar and basically mm-hmm. invents an, an entire new style with the open tunings. Fifty open tunings by the end of her career, yeah. or as her career is winding down, this incredible yeah. method of approaching this instrument uh, with a, with an immaculate voice to go with it, and then this incredible songwriting acumen on top of it, all apparently self-taught. Right? I mean, what completely. was completely, and and she didn't know that would happen. And David, we mentioned it earlier, but she's in college at art school. She gets pregnant during her sophomore year. She gives the baby up for adoption. This affected her very deeply. Where is she mentally at this point, and how do you think it was reflected in her music? That's right. And she's, she's living in a very, very cheap rooming house. She's completely broke. I mean, she has the money that she's making from folk gigs, but then when she starts to show too much, she can't perform anymore. And so she's really, you know, like her neighbors are taking pity on her and giving her fruit and stuff like that. I mean, she's really, really broke. So she gives birth February 19th, 1965, it's one of those things where, like, it's a, it's a situation where someone is pent up and, and can't say what she's thinking and can't say what she's feeling and has to keep a big, big secret about the source of it all. And then it comes out in a sublimated way through these beautiful songs. Child with a child pretend. Weary of lies you are sending home So you sign all the papers in the family name You're sad and you're sorry but you're not ashamed A little grief And so because she was hiding this shame and because she had this grief of giving up her daughter the first song that she ever writes is on the train 
She's with the guy who got her pregnant, this guy named Brad McMath, who took off soon after. They go on this 14-hour train ride to Toronto. And so she hadn't written any songs. She was just doing traditional folk songs. She was singing the songs that Joan Baez and Judy Collins were singing. She was singing songs out of the child ballad book. You know, Nancy Whiskey. Whiskey, Whiskey, Nancy Whiskey. Whiskey, Whiskey, Nancy So she's on the train, and she starts to write this beautiful song. It's called Day After Day. She never records it. But it, it, you can hear it on YouTube. She, there's a demo of it. Day after those kind of triadic folk chords that she got away from pretty quickly. It's about a um, damsel in distress who's waiting for a hero on a horse t- to come and save her. But she doesn't think that's going to happen, so that's the sadness of the song. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful song, and it's amazing. It's her first try, and she didn't think it was good enough to record, probably because it was too derivative, but very impressive for her first try. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, so, and the second song she writes becomes a minor hit on the country charts, and that song is... Um, Urge for going, yeah. Which which Not was a bad second by, song. That's her second song. When the sun turns traitor gold and all the trees are shivering in a naked role, I get the urge for going, but I never seem to go. So let's fast forward a bit. Joni goes on to record her first three albums by 1970. She's won a Grammy, garnered a large fan base, found commercial success, and this is right before she starts recording her fourth album, the record we're focusing on today, Blue. How did she handle this since stardom and being famous wasn't really something she was looking for? You go into it, you hope that you make it, and then there's no exit strategy. That's right. right. Isn't mm-hmm. that always the case? Right. right. In Joni's case, because her work was so personal... She didn't have a way of um, creating the kind of barrier that probably you would need to have a healthy attitude toward it. I mean, when you think about, for example, the way Dylan was in 66 when he was so vulnerable and you could see why he couldn't handle it and why he had to go off the road for eight years. And then you see him after that and you see that he kind of creates this persona that distances himself a little bit and allows him to, to function in a way because he's not, there's there's a barrier between him and the audience and I feel like Joni never really got that Joni was always herself now me I play for fortunes and those velvet curtain calls so that work is intimate in every way so I think that when she felt vulnerable, it brought on something that she thought of as, like, she said, well, people in the West might call it a nervous breakdown, but I thought of it more as a shamanistic hmm. breakthrough, a shamanistic breakthrough. That's how she thought of it. And so she wanted to, you know, she she announced her retirement in 1970, and, and she went to live in a cave in Greece. Mm-hmm. Was it literally a cave? Did you get to the bottom of that? Uh, in yes. Crete, is she literally living in a rock hole? Mm. 
Yes, yes. She was she was with this girl named Joellen, and she 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 was living. Yeah, it was a fashionable place to do it. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of hippies were hanging out there. <laughs> <laughs> and and then of course it was there that that this girl Joellen Lapidus designed a, a dulcimer for her that she ended up recording with on Blue. She did Case of You on that dulcimer, right? Yeah, right. California also. She was engaged to Graham Nash. They were living together in um, Laurel Canyon on that house in that house on Lookout Mountain, and which which I've been in the house. It's a pretty modest house for rock stars to live in. It looked like a place that two graduate students would be sharing. Really, mm-hmm. she was making money, but I just don't think she knew what that was or how to deal with it or anything, because mm-hmm. she was just thinking about you know being creative and doing what she wanted and dropping acid when she wanted to and whatever well there's that the, david that that fascinating interview she gives to uh cameron crow about that mm-hmm. that point in her life i came to a turning point the terrible opportunity people are given in their lives the day they discovered to the tips of their toes that they're a-holes <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is she talking about she said that she could look at people and read into them and read into their souls and it was so overwhelming to her that she would be at the supermarket and she would see somebody's soul and she would cry. And that the, the very thing that she was doing in Blue, which terrified some people and which besotted others, was that she was doing that with her listeners. Right, because that quote is in relation to her uh, being where she's at when she's writing and recording Blue. Yes, but, but I think when you hear, for example, like the title track of Blue... so beautifully distilled about this melancholy that she's describing and the fact that she's using a color to describe it is so important because she used synesthesia she thought like a visual artist yeah you know her parents her father was colorblind her mother was also she thought colorblind whereas she was color acute so part of it was responding to her parents and saying, I can see things that you can't see. You don't you you didn't know what you were doing when you were raising me because you couldn't see. I can see it. Mm-hmm. Right? And so when she says blue, it means a lot. It's an emotion, it's a color, it's tied to the blues. You know, she loves kind of blue. That was probably in the mix there. Well, it was very poetic writing. She wasn't, you know, yeah. she wasn't being super literal, um, and I think that's part of the charm of the record is that uh, people want to read all this stuff into it, but there's also a universal quality to it that allows mm-hmm. anybody to see themselves in it if they want to. I mean, that's true, and I call it the Joni Mitchell effect because she's hiding in plain sight. We're talking with David Yaffe, author of Reckless Daughter, A Portrait of Joni Mitchell. Um, you know, this very 1970, 
uh, habit of the music world in particular, but life in general, of, of uh, you know, framing a woman's talents and success and career with the men in her life. So as a biographer, you're telling the story of making blue, writing blue, recording mm-hmm. blue, uh, and you can't ignore, you know, there's the Graham Nash relationship has unraveled. The time in Crete, living in the cave in Greece, Mm -hmm. there's a relationship with a a waiter. And then James Taylor's in the wings and this romance. There was a Peace Corps activist who was a cook named Carrie Raditz. Carrie's the song, and then then Leonard Cohen is in there too, because uh, Case of You is is really about Leonard Cohen. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, to the extent that any song is about anybody. Well, I think it was also, I think just for additional context here, I mean, just to add to that, is that the way the record was perceived around that time, Rolling Stone did a whole section about who Joni Mitchell had slept with around the time that this record came out, which to me kind of like, okay, that is a typical male response uh, to a, a record by a woman to frame it in terms of who she'd slept with. As Especially opposed with to, that generation, yeah. that generation of men, and that I guess what I would say is that her experiences are hers, just in the same way that Bob Dylan's experiences are his, or that Leonard Cohen's experiences are his, or John Lennon's, or whoever else you want to think of as being in the peer group of Joni Mitchell, Paul Simon. They write about their life, they write about their loves, they write about their sex life, they write about what they do, and it's their prerogative to do it as artists, and nobody's going to question it, and just as nobody should question it if you're Joni Mitchell or anybody else. Right? Everybody's, everybody's life is up for grabs when you're an artist. So she's an artist. But I also think that the experiences are less important than, than the fact that they happen to Joni Mitchell and that Joni Mitchell then has this way of articulating it. She has this way of interpreting it. She has this way of expressing her reaction to things that happen to her. And so it's not very remarkable to you know have, have a love life, have breakups. Yes, some of those people that she uh, was intimate with were famous, but that's pretty typical too if you think about it because people, they often hook up with people that they're right. in the same field with. What you're saying though, if you remove all of that context of who it was specifically that she may or may not have been writing about, it's still a, a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece, but in fact, I think that if you're to take it for what it should be, then it, it is about intimacy. I mean, that's part of the story. It is yeah. about relationships. I think it's artificial to remove it from its intimate content because that's the point. I want to talk to you. I want to shampoo you. I want to renew you again and again. Applause, applause. Life is our cause. When I think of your kisses, my mind sees songs. You know, David, you use the word intimacy, and I think it's a, a fascinating one. And uh, uh, my rock critic hero, Lester Bangs, said of Blue that it's a record that, that, that's too intimate. I almost feel like a voyeur uh, as a man uh, listening to Blue. It makes me uncomfortable. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. No, I think she wanted, because she was feeling uncomfortable herself. And so I think she, I think that's that that's the effect that she wanted. I mean, I think she wanted to confront people, although she she did so in, in dulcet tones, but she did. I mean, the last time I saw Richard is a confrontation, mm-hmm. for sure. You know, all romantics meet the same fate someday. That That is meant to make people uncomfortable, although, of course, it's with this you know, beautiful voice and these beautiful climbing piano chords and so on. I'm gonna blow this damn candle out I don't want nobody coming over to my table talk to anybody about all good dreamers pass this way someday hiding behind bottles 
It, it, it's a combination of the lyric writing, the melody writing, the chords, the rhythms, with these truths, these these intimate and often uncomfortable truths. To be fair about this record, by the way, and I think I said this in the book, that Blue was maybe a 60% moping record and a 40% party record. Yeah. Because some of those songs are actually joyous, and pe when people talk about Blue, they think about all this grim stuff. But you have Carrie, which is a, yeah. a, a very is a playful song, and it's a it's a song you can dance to. Oh, Carrie, get out your cane. Carrie, get out your cane. Put on some silk. I'll put on some silk. Oh, you're a mean old daddy, but I like you. California's kind of hopeful, California. too. California. California's kind of sweet. California, coming home. I'm going to see the folks I dig. I'll even kiss a sunset pig. California, I'm coming home. It's interesting because, like, you, you know, she, she, she wasn't like uh, Janis Joplin. I mean, Janis Joplin had this kind of raw reality that she was taking it to, and it was something that you know led to later Patti Smith and whoever else you want to say, Louis, Lucinda Williams, Liz Fair. I mean, a certain kind of aggressive quality that and that Joni herself would kind of have in, in, a, in a later incarnation of her life. But on Blue, everything is so euphonious, even when she's talking about the darkest thing. I mean, Blue is this beautiful, beautiful song. Like while it's it's about losing yourself. And into something that could be, you know, the heroine that James Taylor was hooked on. It could be just going to the darkest, darkest place of trying to hide in this cloud of melancholy. Well, there's so many sinking, now you gotta keep thinking you can make it through these waves. Acid, booze, and ass, needles, guns, and grass, lots of laughs. The album, um, Especially if we, if you if you go to the bluest songs on Blue, like Blue, like the last time last time I saw Richard, like a case of you, it's just I mean this is a word that's used about it a lot, but it's just so honest. And but what's remarkable is that a lot of things can be honest. Something can be honest and also not be good, right? Sure. B blue is unflinchingly honest, and it's a th thing of beauty. Yeah. And so, I mean, and maybe that makes people uncomfortable. It's confusing to, to men because I think uh, the emotions that she's talking about, a lot of guys really are uncomfortable dealing with those. I'm, let's forget not just Joni Mitchell, but just talking to women in this way in general mm -hmm. for a lot of men is very difficult. And I know a lot of women who really relate to this record because mm -hmm. she's expressing what they would like to say or are feeling but can't articulate necessarily. Uh, yes, so it's an interesting split the way – it's interesting that a lot of male critics reviewed this record at the time. Uh, but since then, we've seen a lot of women chiming in on the record um, you know, as their voices become more heard in our media. And uh, I think they're the ones that are really championing this record in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. And, and um, I, I mean, listening to it in 2018 or listening to it just – you know, any time in in the in the new millennium, or listening to it in the nineties, yeah, it's it's a it's a different experience than listening to it in nineteen seventy one, and also about like why it wasn't that well received when it came out. It was not an instant big seller when it came out. It took a long time to become her biggest seller, 
And a lot of that was like in the 90s. Yeah. Really. And and when the whole sensibility changed and when you could be a different kind of a woman. I think like Patti Smith like really shook a lot of people up and um, sort of moved the needle on all the ways that you could express yourself as a woman. We've been talking with David Yaffe, author of the biography Reckless Daughter, a portrait of Joni Mitchell. David, thanks for coming on Sound Opinions. Thanks for having me and thanks for such a stimulating conversation. After a short break, we'll continue our discussion of Joni Mitchell's Blue by talking to music critic Lindsay Zolads about Blue's impact. Later, we'll share some of our favorite tracks from that record. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. We don't need no Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. And this week, we're talking about the 1971 album Blue by Joni Mitchell. Now, earlier in the show, we discussed the context of the record and some of the tracks, and now we want to explore the album's influence, the lasting impact and legacy of Joni Mitchell today. Here to talk about it is music writer and critic for The Ringer, Lindsay Zolads. Lindsay, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you for having me. Hi. You wrote this brilliant piece, Fear of a Female Genius, about Joni Mitchell, and we thought you'd be a perfect voice to bring in to this conversation as we look at the legacy of Blue. I mean, first of all, that's a brilliant title and a brilliant phrase you use throughout the piece. Tell us what you're thinking of when you say there's a fear of Joni Mitchell's female genius. Yeah, I think that there are just so few examples in pop culture of women who have lived and had careers and behaved like men who we call geniuses. Obviously, I'm a huge fan of her music, but I am fascinated by the way that she's moved throughout the culture and at each stop and each decade and era kind of shown us what the resistance was to a woman living and working as freely as she did. Uncompromising, brutal when someone, you know, Mm -hmm. challenges her. She, you know, she takes no guff from nobody, never. Yeah, absolutely. She was so impervious to the criticism. She didn't ever let it slow her down or change the way she was doing business or or soften her in any way. And I just think she's so fascinating for that reason and for so many other reasons, too. Oh, Starbred, Starbred, you've got the loving that I like, all right. Turn this crazy bird around, I should have gone this way tonight. Well, when she was making Blue, she even sort of dropped out of the music industry uh, for a while before that record was made. She's a famous woman. She had relationships with famous men. She was constantly being framed within these relationships, an incredibly condescending viewpoint of a great artist. Uh, so what was the context of, of, of Blue being made and, and being as personal a record as it was? Was it because of the environment uh, that was sort of being shaped around her, the sort of the narrative that she was being forced into as sort of a the lone female artist maybe that was getting that sort of recognition among a male-dominated industry? Yeah, I think there's always a sense of Joni removing herself from the context she was in, the story that the press was telling about her, but it also is the moment after she leaves Graham Nash. And I talk about that in the piece, too, that that seemed like a really kind of pivotal turning point for her, turning away from what could have been perhaps a stable and comfortable marriage and just fleeing and traveling and living a life of freedom and also kind of questioning what she was leaving behind by choosing that freedom over Graham. 
a lot younger than me and Greg, uh, and I wasn't even there when Joni was making her music. I wasn't quite conscious yet. You're a younger woman. How did you become exposed to Joni Mitchell, and what sort of an impact at what point in your life did the music have? There's something really matrilineal about the way people get into Joni Mitchell, and, and that a lot of time it is literally through their mothers. And back in the days of like burning CDs onto your computer, I one day just was like, oh, I got to see what Joni Mitchell's all about. And I remember sort of doing it. I took it sneakily from my mom's collection and like put it back so she didn't know that I was like <laughs> of the age to kind of understand what Joni Mitchell was was coming from emotionally. Um, there's usually kind of the older brother figure passing mm-hmm. down the cool records. And it's not a very cool story to say, well, I like Joni Mitchell because my mom exposed me to her. Under the surface of the canon that we usually talk about of, of men defining and passing, you know, what is the great music onto men, there's something kind of subterranean about the way that her music um, passes from generation to generation. I love that. I don't want you to put you in a position of speaking for all young women today, Lindsay, but I am. So you're going to have to be that spokesman for two minutes anyway. Uh, right. Do you think this kind of record, a, a record that was made, you know, in the early 70s, um, having an impact on a generation that was born well after, you know, Joni Mitchell's heyday, can still listen to this record and say, you know, I, I relate to it. I mean, or, or or does it feel like a historical document rather than a living, breathing thing that speaks to uh, young women today? I think the record itself feels like a living, breathing thing that people of any gender can relate to and, and young people because this sort of feels like a farewell to the 20s record. And that's, you know, always kind of a theme in pop culture that's that's recurring throughout whatever generation is in is in the 20 something slot at the time. But I think that she I wrote about this a bit that I think Joni is so uncompromising and kind of prickly in some ways that she's hard to reduce into like a gif or a a sort of internet icon in the way that like I wrote something about Stevie Nicks last year too and I think she's someone who the image of Stevie Nicks has translated a lot more seamlessly onto like internet culture youth culture for whatever reason but I think there's sort of the image and then that is the gateway to the actual music so I think both of those artists the music has aged really well I think Joni though harder to kind of package and commodify in that way. Once the music reaches you, there's something about it that feels timeless and feels raw and current no matter what time and what generation you're talking about. What would you say to the Cardi B fan, the Grimes (laughs) fan, the Janelle Monet fan, you know, the the precocious, uh, adventurous 18-year-old music lover to say, all right, all right, that's a great playlist you got there. Now you got to listen to Blue. Words fail to describe. Like you kind of just have to sneak that on <laughs> the playlist. Um, <laughs> Put it in the, but in the, in the think, Spotify playlist. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of those artists too would say that they were influenced by her, and and maybe that's a place to start with people that that are unfamiliar with her. Like there's just you know I talk in the piece about her connection with Prince and how 
Prince, as a teen, would go to these Joni Mitchell concerts and actually wrote her fan mail like in the Prince syntax <laughs> with the yeah. four mm-hmm. number and stuff. And, um, <laughs> you, letter so, you, yeah. Yeah, and I think that, you know, just the influence she had on other artists who then influence other people, it's all this web of influence that kind of goes back to her through a lot of forward-thinking female artists. Lindsay, um, what about, you mentioned Prince as being one of the artists who was heavily influenced by Joni. What are some other artists that you've come across in recent years that people may not be aware of that sort of mention Joni Mitchell as a as an influence on the way they make music? I think in modern analog to her might be Fiona Apple. Mm-hmm. I, I think she has spoken about her influence, but just in the the vividness of the lyricism and the kind of uncompromising way she has conducted her public life and kind of just plowed through whatever people had to say about her and and kept making albums that went deeper and deeper into herself. I think she's maybe one of the closest artists, but she also is not as prolific as Joni was. It's fascinating to look at that period in the late 60s through the mid 70s of just both how much she was fighting against every system that she came across, but was making so much music and putting out a brilliant record pretty much every year. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Lauryn Hill, there's a comparison to be made there. but also someone who has not put out a lot of music has kind of, I think part of the the kind of quote-unquote female genius persona is it's really difficult to get things through the system and to get to make the necessary compromises to even release a record that you're proud of. So I, I do, now that I'm thinking of it, just the women that you could compare her to um, today aren't maybe ha- having as easy a time with their record labels or with uh, oh, with, 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 with the public perception. Yeah, I mean, you yeah, know, Fiona and, and Lauren Hill. I mean, both paid significant price for 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 their uh, mm-hmm. you know were criticized uh, in public in 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 disturbing ways. You know, in a way that Joni never put up with. There's just a lot of a lot more scrutiny now. A lot more lenses to scrutinize women through um, just on the internet and, and with the way that the news cycle kind of works. I, I do think it might be harder in some ways to to be a woman like Joni today. Mm. Um, but I also, I think there's just, I'm hoping that the the floodgates are starting to at least, if not open, <laughs> weaken mm. in a in some way, um, because I do think there's just a much larger volume of female artists out there. They're more visible. You have to kind of dig around to find analogs um, in in more modern contexts for her. I think that's well said. That's a good point. All right, let me play uh, devil's advocate question, uh, Lindsay. Um, the headline <laughs> of your piece, uh, you know, fear of a female genius. Um, you know, the problem when we have something like the NPR list of greatest albums ever made by women last year, right? You know, why aren't they just 
the greatest albums ever made, right? Why are they albums by women? Why is she a female? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, obviously, she's, her art uh, is very much from a female perspective. But are we limiting her by saying a female genius as opposed to Neil Young genius, Bob Dylan genius, Leonard Cohen genius, just genius? I think eventually, hopefully, we'll get there. I don't think we're there yet in the culture. You know, she she was number one on the NPR women's list, but I think in the, the Rolling Stone greatest albums of all time, I think Blue was like number 30, and that was the first one by a woman. A reason that she is really fascinating to me is, and just to look at her whole story, is that she showed both the limitations on women at the time and also the way that they were able to be transcended. So I think that focusing on, you know, I talk in the piece about her pregnancy and and the adoption and just the, the way that that did kind of weight on her throughout her life. That's And the way that that was always kind of something that was going to tether her to reality more than it did um, the men who kind of behaved like geniuses around that they could leave their families a lot more freely than a woman was able to at that time. So I Mm. think looking at her in that context, what does it mean to be a female genius? Are there inherent compromises in that that make it different from a male one? And I think that just with maybe someday we'll get there where there's not, but I think just in the culture we are unfortunately not there yet. There are not enough Jonies. We've been talking to Lindsay Zolads from The Ringer about Joni Mitchell. Thanks for coming on the show, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. When we come back, Jim and I are going to share some tracks that we think are important to highlight from that album. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And this week we're doing a classic album dissection of Joni Mitchell's Blue, which came out in 1971 and is arguably Mitchell's biggest success. We're going to share some of our favorite tracks now and why we think it is a classic album. Greg, you first. Jim, I want to highlight uh, the track California, which uh, some people think of as one of the more optimistic songs on the record. And uh, it is a song about home, or at least her adopted home in California. Obviously, she was born in Canada. This was written as part of her European hiatus. She uh, basically dropped out of the music industry for a number of months after her first three albums came out and made her a star. She just wanted to get away from everything, including California. She went to to Europe and lived like a hippie for a while, but she got homesick. She uh, decided, you know, even though I'm very disillusioned with California, I'm wearing out on this European lifestyle. I want to get back home. The whole idea of coming home was, was a hopeful sentiment, but there's also a key question at the heart of this song. It's a plaintive question that I think is the key to the album. That line, will you take me as I am? She's speaking to California. She's speaking to America. She's speaking to her fan base. She's speaking to the men in her life. She is talking about, you know, I'm, I'm this woman who, who is independent, is doing my thing on my terms. Will you accept that? Because if you can't, 
I don't want any part of you. And that, that really is kind of the impetus of, of the Blue Album. It's an emancipatory album in many ways with that question at the heart of it. And at the same time, the feeling of longing expressed so beautifully uh, later in the song by a little subtle touch of pedal steel guitar from uh, Sneaky Pete Kleino of the Flying Burrito Brothers. The way that pedal steel sort of wafts through uh, the atmosphere created by Joni's voice and her Appalachian dulcimer. I think it's a beautiful song, but with many, many layers, and, and it is a great example of the multi-layered uh, songwriting that is the key to this album. Very simple arrangements with many, many textures and feelings coursing through them. California from Joni Mitchell's Blue. Sitting in a park in Paris, France, reading the news, and it sure looks bad. They won't give peace a chance That was just a dream some of us had Still a lot of lines to see But I wouldn't want to stay here It's too old and cold And settled in its ways here All the California California Coming home I'm gonna see the folks I dig I'll even kiss a sunset pig California coming home Who did the goat dance very well He gave me back my smile But he kept my camera in a cell Oh, the rogue, the red, red rogue He cooked good omelets and stews And I might have stayed on with him there But my heart cried out for you California That is California, what I think is one of the key tracks from Joni Mitchell's Blue. Jim, what have you got? Greg, we have to uh, play Little Green. You know, we were talking about this daughter that uh, Joni Mitchell had when she was a struggling college student and folk singer, had to give up for adoption. You know, that's in the mid-60s. It wasn't until the mid-90s when that part of her life was exposed by a tabloid. And she subsequently, a few years later, uh, started a relationship with that uh, young woman, her daughter, Kilorin Gibb. Um, You know, I think... One of the sins that listeners, uh, male and female, but in particular the male rock critic mm. establishment, lays upon Blue is reading it as strict autobiography at all times. The reason I mention this, uh, this is obviously a song written about her daughter, Little Green, but uh, you know nobody knew about that mm. for a good 25 years. Yeah. Uh, and now that's all anybody talks about in the context of this song. But if we look at the song, one of those classic weird Joni Mitchell uh, uh, guitar tunings, you know, uh, of her own uh, songs in open G, mm. um, you know, if we look at the lyrics, it's about uh, longing in general. It could be first heard as longing for the seasons to change mm-hmm. away from the cold and into the spring. It could be more specifically, I think, longing for any parent, uh, in particular a father. All right, I'm a father of a daughter. So are you. Yeah. You've got two. Uh, uh, about a daughter, uh, both both being uh, an obsessive uh, love, but also someday she's going to leave you. Yeah. And that's going to leave a hole. You were talking about how much longing and, and sadness and and emancipation runs throughout blue. It's not just in the romantic sense. It's also about in in the sense of childhood. And then I think it's just a a great song about hoping for something better, period. You don't need to know everything that happened Mm. to Joni. It's part of the context, but this is an immortal song because it stands without any of that. Little Green by Joni Mitchell on Sound Opinions. Boy 
choose her a name she will answer to Call her green and the winters cannot fade her Call her green for the children who've made her little green Be a gypsy dancer Everything's warmer there So you write him a letter and say Her eyes are blue He sends you a poem And she's lost to you Little green He's a non-conformer Just a little Joni Mitchell, Little Green on Sound Opinions. Greg? Another song to highlight from Blue. I like I like your choice of Little Green, Jim, because I think it illustrates you know the the strength of Joni's songwriting. Because you wouldn't have known it was about her daughter unless you had inside information. It right. could have been about many many situations. At the same time, take drawings very specifically on the pain in her private life to create a song uh, that has universal significance. And I think many of the songs on, on Blue have that regard. So to call it a confessional album, I think completely misreads what it's about. Uh, A great example of that is the song River. You know, it's amazing how this song has become a Christmas standard, a holiday standard. You can hear it at Starbucks playing on, you know, (laughs) when you go in for a coffee starting like about mid-November. You know, it's just one of those things that's kind of like wallpaper now for the holidays. And it is an incredibly sad song. It's almost like a eulogy. Here's the Canadian girl singing about skating away on a river while she's in California, a place that at the time she does not really love and is kind of getting disgusted by. The key line for me, I wish I had a river river so long I would teach my feet to fly. And the way her voice just sort of flies off on that last uh, syllable is just so beautiful and heartbreaking. Uh, And then lands on, I made my baby cry. This whole notion of... I've just gone through this this relationship that ended terribly. I miss my home of origin. I miss my childhood. Thinking about all these things coursing through the song and doing it beautifully with the framing device of Jingle Bells. I think that's yeah, why people think, yeah. oh, it's a holiday song. But it's played so sadly and mournfully. And she starts off sing, you know, with a kind of a plaintive tone to those chords. And then at the end, it's devastatingly slow. slow. It's almost like a eulogy. So it's a beautiful and yet heartbreaking song that I think encapsulates the, the multitude of emotions that, that are coursing through uh, the Blue Album. Here's River from Joni Mitchell on Sound Opinions. It's coming on Christmas They're cutting down trees they're putting up reindeer and singing songs of joy and peace oh i wish i had a river i could skate away on but it don't snow here stays pretty green i'm gonna make a lot of money then i'm gonna quit this crazy scene i wish i had a river I could skate away on I wish I had a river so long I would teach my feet to fly Oh, I wish I had a river I could skate away 
River from Joni Mitchell. You've got one more great blue track for us, Jim. Uh, a case of you, Greg. Uh, the Mitchell uh, obsessives, who I think often are obsessing and not listening, uh, debate. Is this song about her romantic split from Graham Nash, or is it about Leonard Cohen? Mm-hmm. I, You know... I don't care. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. that's Joni's life. That's not her art. What is brilliant about this art is that we've all had a case of someone that is both good for us and bad for us. Everybody, you know, obligatory rock critic quote, I'm a lonely painter, I live in a box of paints, okay? But to me, the the lines before that, you know, you are in my blood like holy wine. You taste so bitter and so sweet. I could drink a case of you, and I'd still be on my feet. That's everything I love about Joni Mitchell. <laughs> Number one, she's tough as nails. You know what I mean? Yeah. You are not going to drink me under the table. I'll <laughs> kill you first, right? <laughs> Number two, the play on a case, a case of you, like a bad case of the flu. Mm. Uh, but also, I'll I'll devour a case of you. I can't get enough. Mm. I love you, but I'm also uh, uh, broken by this relationship as we end it, all of these feelings are encompassed. And, you know, a lot of times we talk about artists who cover something. I think it's a testament when a wide array of incredible talents come to the same song for inspiration and make it their own. Tori Amos, Prince, Diana Krall, Katie Lang, all of them have Mm. done versions of A Case of You. Uh, I think that they are all hearing something in it uh, different and bringing something of their own and you know so is everyone who really listens to and loves Blue Mm -hmm. A Case of You by Joni Mitchell on Sound Opinions Just before our love got lost you said I am as constant as a northern star and I said constantly in the darkness where's that at if you want me I'll be in the bar TV screen light I drew a map of Canada Oh, Canada With your face sketched on it twice Case of You by Joni Mitchell, wrapping up our classic album dissection of her 1971 album, Blue. Now we want to hear from you. Do you have any opinions on Blue or Joni Mitchell or anything in the music world? Call 888-859-1800 and leave us a message. Greg, what do we got on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have a great conversation and performance lined up from Margot Price. As always, Sound Opinions was produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, and Iona Contreras.
want sound opinions? Everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Hi, Jim and Greg. It's Jeremy Shatton from New York City. And great episode on giving the drummer some, something I truly believe in. I thought I would just mention that John Bonham was a sampler himself, in a sense, because the intro to rock and roll, that wonderful hi-hat snare thing that he does, was actually a sample itself, in a way, from Charles Connor, who invented that beat for Little Richard on Keep a Knockin'. It blew my mind when I put on the second Little Richard album and heard that song. Um, as far as favorite drum beats go, I would have to mention I Don't Want to Go to Chelsea by Elvis Costello and the Attractions. Pete Thomas, always a great drummer. drumming on that song is just astonishing, the way he comes in with such fierce, almost second-line funk on that thing, and then the spidery guitar comes in, and, it, and it's off to the races. Um, it's just one of Elvis's greatest songs. So anyway, keep up the great work, and I will talk to you guys later. Ciao. Hi, Jim and Greg. My name is Corinne, and I'm calling from Utica, New York. Uh, I just listened to your Anxious Anthems episode, and I wanted to call in and suggest a song that I think is just the absolute best at capturing tension and anxiety. And that's uh, the National Anthem by Radiohead. It's probably my favorite Radiohead song of all time. It's just such a weird, cacophonous thing until you feel like you're just going to go nuts listening to it. And it never really resolves. It just maintains that anxiety the whole time. It's so good. Um, anyway, I love the show. Okay, thanks very much. Hi, this is Peter Forsyth. I'm just enjoying your latest uh, an Anxious Anthems episode. And uh, there's a song I think you might have missed that I think would be a fun addition if you revisit this. Um, this is from the hip-hop genre, which is definitely one of my favorite uh, areas of music, but I think doesn't really tend to access that particular range of emotions all that often, but the song, which is really one of my favorites, is called The Rooster, and it's from the Speaker Box Love Below album by Outkast. I woke up very upset, I throw the covers back and peep out through the draperies, my daughter, my baby, my baby mama all escaping me, like a when the when she was my friend, like princess died before she got there, for we tried and tried again, but in the end you pay attention to the pluses, but the minuses behind it make it seem like you can't win. It's a, uh, a pretty rollicking romp through the singer's psyches. Thanks very much. Hey, this is Judy Thomas from Stone Mountain, Georgia. I was just listening to Sound Opinion on WABE here in Atlanta, uh, and you had a great episode about tension and pressure and uh, songs that are about anxiety. You totally skipped over one that is absolutely one that just, oh golly, it's so full of anxiety and the tension builds in the song is perfect. Um, and it's by Billy Joel, Pressure. 
You have to learn to pace yourself. Pressure. Thanks so much. Bye. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.